Hi, I'm Katherine Welch, and this is Life After Pulse from WMFE. I just have a simple little pulse mark on my ribs. This is where the wounded are at. This is where they're being pronounced dead at. And this is two blocks away from the pulse. Uh, You know, I think some of these items just belong to the angels. It's been one year since 49 people were killed and more than 50 injured after a gunman opened fire at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. As the world woke up to the horrible news, memorials started to emerge around Orlando. In this episode, we look at what happened to the thousands of items left in remembrance and explore why we memorialize tragedy. The dark gray nightclub sits quietly behind a chain-link fence that's covered in rainbow-colored murals. Carol Human is one of about a dozen people, quietly reading notes left at the fence. I was looking through the fence over there, and it's just amazing that so much horror and panic and fear took place there. Yahada Patino is also visiting for the first time. This is hard for her. She lost two friends in the shooting. I'm okay. It's, it's hard. Wiping away tears, she takes in the art, flowers, and letters. She didn't expect so much left here. Now she wants to see the nightclub turned into a memorial. I think it's a great idea. I mean, it was a huge massacre. It was the biggest one in the country, and, and it was a hate crime as well. And I think it's something that we that it shouldn't be forgotten. During the past year, I drive by Pulse or stop by from time to time to check out the letters and artwork or conduct an interview. Only once has there been nobody here, and that was in the middle of a recent Tuesday. On most days, someone's here taking it in. There's also a constant flow of items, including big pieces of art, a massive top hat covered in handwritten messages, and not far away, a wooden display box with names and photos of the 49. Banners, photos, wreaths, letters, flowers, and votive candles also flow in and out of here. Why do we do this? Leave items? Memorialize? The people who ponder that question have a few thoughts. It's a way to mark death. It's a way to remember life. It's a way to process grief. For now, the nightclub is the memorial site, but you have to remember that in the days following the shooting, it was a crime scene. So in those early days, memorials sprang up elsewhere, at the hospital just down from Pulse, at Orlando's iconic Lake Eola Park, and the largest one grew on the front lawn of the Performing Arts Center across from City Hall. Pam Schwartz is the chief curator at the Orange County Regional History Center. She watched the early news reports with a curator's eye and a few questions. Who will tell this story and how? To be honest, it was me sitting on my couch at home on Sunday thinking, police are investigating, doctors are saving lives. I'm a curator and a public historian, and the role that I need to be playing is to preserve this so that in 150 years, nobody gets to forget that it happened. And so started to craft um, a five-page plan, um, which, which is what I kind of brought into my boss on Monday. And then that's just what set the ball rolling. While Pam was working with city and county government to decide who had permission to collect items and become custodian of the sites, she watched the flowers and notes and posters pile up. Florida summers are wet and hot. An afternoon shower in 90-degree weather can turn a letter into a baked pile of pulp within hours. So Pam took hundreds and hundreds of photographs, documenting the raw emotions in those objects left early on. 
It was all she could do while her five-page plan snaked its way through the approval process. It took two weeks for the History Center to become officially in charge. Then it was time to work. Pam Schwartz faced unique conservation issues. The weather created mold and erased writing on poster boards. Moisture oozed its way into laminated photos. Many of those first items left were destroyed. Uh, You know, I think some of these items just belong to the angels. So Pam's team started clearing items left at the hospital, Lake Eola, and the Dr. Phillips Center for the Performing Arts. The Lake Eola Memorial had to be cleared first to make way for the city's 4th of July celebration. Then it was on to the Performing Arts Center, where memorial items nearly covered the enormous front lawn. This is where President Obama and Vice President Biden stopped by to lay flowers. Those flowers, Pam says, were stolen almost immediately. One thing that was saved, and saved quickly, was a white IKEA couch covered in messages. It's one of those things where you can ask the question, why do people give the items they choose to give? It's like somebody left a couch. What? But it's, no, IKEA is known for its furniture. And so what did they have that was pristine, that seemed pristine? And there's a lot of I suppose, um, connections you could try to make between the white couch and Pulse. Pulse was known for their white room at a time and their white couches, but really it's probably just the fact that Ikea does furniture. So what do we have? We've got this couch. And so they took it out there. You know, we don't know their exact reasons. Um, Hopefully we'll be able to work with them to get that full story. But then from there, people upon people upon people signed it. I'm Greg Zanis. That's Z as in zebra, A-N-I-S Zanis. During this first month after the shooting, Pam's team was also tending to the memorial at the Orlando Regional Medical Center. This is where Greg Zanis brought his 49 white wooden crosses, one for each victim. Greg started making the crosses 21 years ago as a way to grieve the murder of his father-in-law. He was in church the morning of June 12th. It's where he heard about the shooting. By the time he got home, there were nine phone messages begging him to bring his crosses to Orlando. Two of those calls were from victims' families. So he started to work that Sunday afternoon, and early Wednesday morning, on June 15th, he drove toward Orlando. Police escorted him in. Greg's plan was to put the crosses at the Performing Arts Center, but a police officer told him no, place them at a park on hospital property. He explained it to me a little bit. This this is where the wounded are at. This is where they're being pronounced dead at. You know, And this is two blocks away from the Pulse. So before coming down there, I was planning on putting them maybe at the Civic Center or at the Arts Center. But the hospital made perfect sense, you know. Everything about it just fell into place, you know, being called Lake Beautiful. They're overlooking the hospital rooms. While setting up the white crosses with big red hearts and the names and photos of each victim, people brought Greg sandwiches. Somebody bought him a cell phone. And that night, the restaurant would not let him pay for his dinner. Orlando really stepped up and showed love like no city is, that I've ever been to has ever done before. You know, And just just the, you know, I, I don't know if you know, I, the, I got to meet the governor. He came out and we hugged together. And it was, it was just such a, a wonderful experience from my point of view. 
Over time, visitors covered the crosses with handwritten messages, letters, candles, and objects stacked up around each cross. Then on July 12th, they were ceremoniously removed from the hospital park and taken to the Orange County Regional History Center, where Pam Schwartz started taking care of them. Curators cleaned each cross and the items with it. Then the cross and the items were placed in a box. So everything that was with Brenda's cross is in Brenda's box. Everything that was with Corey's cross is in Corey's box. The boxes are actually custom-designed cases with a clear front panel so the crosses can be both protected and visible. Greg Zanis is awestruck at the care the History Center is taking with them. Those 49 crosses changed his path, he says. Since Orlando, he's received donations, including $10,000 in lumber, and he now works full-time making crosses. Right now, he's making hundreds of them for Chicago murder victims. Greg has set up a nonprofit to help pay for all of this. Before Orlando, he was already well-known, but Pulse just cranked up the spotlight. And he doesn't want the fame. He wants people to see him as the same humble guy that made that first cross 21 years ago. That's a guy doing something that's not trying to get famous. I'm trying to help these families deal with grief that I have been dealing with for 21 years. And that somebody cares enough to come over there and, and put up a cross for him and come over there and hug him. And, you know, so. So he continues his work. And Pam Schwartz continues collecting Pulse Memorial items. Her team has collected more than 5,000 items. They also have photographs and oral histories. And here's the thing. Nobody planned or budgeted for this massive collection. How could they? The financial cost and the man hours are still unknown, since they're still collecting Pulse items. When will they stop? We don't know. 9-11, still collecting. They're still conducting oral histories. They go to the ICU. Men who were saving lives that day and inhaled things into their lungs that are now dying as a result of 9-11, 15 years later, they're doing oral histories and they're still collecting. Things are still coming out. It's just sort of like, we're still collecting the Civil War. <laughs> we're still collecting ancient Rome. Like ancient Rome, actual memorials aren't built in a day. As Pam and her team continue to collect and preserve memorial items, plans are just beginning for a permanent memorial in Orlando. Days after the shooting, reporters started peppering Orlando's mayor with questions about a permanent memorial. Over and over, his answer was that it would take time. And six months after the shooting, it looked like the city would buy the nightclub and start that process. But then the nightclub's owner decided to take on the project herself and backed out of a deal with the city. Mount Holyoke College professor Karen Remler thinks deeply about how tragedies are memorialized. She knows that many people will feel invested in the eventual memorial that will arise because they saw Pulse unfold in the news. Like 9-11, Karen has found that building a memorial for a tragedy that so many people feel connected to will take a long time and require the input from a lot of people from different communities and will invariably involve controversy which is okay, she says. The tussle is part of the grieving. I mean, I remember after 9-11, I went to a huge town hall where there were 5,000 people um, discussing what should happen at the memorial site. Um, this was in 2005. And it was very, um, we had buttons on our table if we wanted to vote one way or the next. And I think that's very unwieldy. I think um, 
that there will be compromises or that some people will not be happy. Um, and I think the controversy itself is the process. And I think that um, in some ways that is the work of mourning. It's not just to put something to rest, but to continue to articulate uh, just the differences that people have in, in remembering the dead, but that in a collective society that allows uh, multiple ways of remembering, that those various ways can very often be incorporated into the memorial process or into the memorial itself. One big question is how long it should take to build the memorial. Right now, the goal is to open in 2020, but it may take longer. In post-war Germany, it took 30 to 40 years before the first series of public Holocaust memorials were built. I think nowadays the time has shortened partly because of the visual character that so many people experience the event. Artist Michael Pilato had an immediate response to the shooting. Like Greg Zanis, he uses art as a way to heal from his own tragedy, the death of his daughter, Skye. To me, this is the embodiment of love. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy I'm here. He moved into a studio near downtown Orlando, a home away from home, to paint sketches of victims, survivors, and those who made a difference. Michael and his assistant are painting these sketches on huge panels filled with symbols and portraits. On one panel, he's painted Amanda Alvere. She was recording a video on Snapchat from the dance floor when shots rang out. Michael has painted her with a shy smile in her black rim glasses, peeking out from under a blue-green hat. She's standing next to her mother, Myra Alvere. Who is just an amazing woman. She's helped pull a lot of the families together. She actually went to Puerto Rico, Madison, Puerto Rico, and helped us with translation. We went to, you know, some graves in Puerto Rico together. It was very beautiful. And and she's just all about love, you know. He's painted the portraits of survivors, LGBT activists, poets, CNN's Anderson Cooper, police who were there that night, nurses, and children who responded by making hundreds of paper hearts. These elaborate sketches are for a larger piece called Inspiration Orlando. What that is going to look like is yet to be imagined. He envisions a blend of high art and video. Others have memorialized the tragedy in small ways. I just have a simple little pulse mark on my ribs. Logan Creaseman woke up on June 12th and read about the shooting on her Facebook feed. The 22-year-old remembers sitting in church wondering if all of her friends were safe. They were. I was very, very thankful that I didn't... I did have friends who knew people, and it was very sad to hear about that, but I didn't know anyone personally. Hundreds of people lined up for days outside tattoo parlors that were volunteering to help raise money for victims. Logan was one of the countless number of people who used flesh and ink to memorialize the shooting. Even though she didn't know any of the victims, the shooting hit close to home. See, Logan hadn't fully come out. She had told her mom a few months earlier, but not her dad. He's a pastor, and she knew how he felt about homosexuality. So when I was trying to find the time to come out to my dad I when this happened I, it moved me so much that I felt like I I had to in a way I felt that it was important that he knew why I was so moved 
and why it affected me so much. So just a few days after the shooting, she told him. It was right after the candlelight event at the Dr. Phillips Center. And we were walking, just walking back to the car, and I told him. And I could tell that he was kind of hesitant, but I think that he was all right with it. It was a lot of, there was a lot of talking after that that I don't need to get into. <laughs> a year later, Logan's glad she got the tattoo. It's a way to make sure Pulse is never forgotten. And it, it's a nice reminder of what came from it because it felt like after the shooting that the community, both Orlando and the LGBT community came together. And even though something really tragic had happened, it still helped create this sense of unity and community and I wanted to remember that not just the shooting itself but also what what was a result of it. Find more of our Pulse coverage at our website wmfe.org. Thank you to local artist Ishmael Perez for the music. It's his piano interpretation of the song Love Make the World Go Round by Jennifer Lopez and Lin-Manuel Miranda. I'm Katherine Welch, and this is Life After Pulse.